Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and you are listening to a special episode of Beyond the Paper Gown. We knew it was coming. The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked months in advance of the announcement. Still, once it hit, it felt to me and to many others like an earthquake. And if you've ever experienced an earthquake, you know that shortly after the first jolt, for some time, you will experience aftershocks, most of which are much less jarring than the first initial quake, but can also be pretty sizable and unpredictable. In fact, you never quite know when they're going to hit. So I couldn't think of a better analogy for what we've all just experienced. And just like earthquakes, which are pretty indiscriminate in terms of who they affect, this decision will impact everyone to some degree, admittedly some more than others, but no matter our gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, or religion, we will all be affected in some way. The podcast you're about to hear is one of a series of four podcasts which aims to help you understand the many ways that we are all going to be affected, the aftershocks, if you will. It's taken from a webinar I hosted on July 6th, where we invited 11 expert panelists on four different panels to explain how the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will make an impact on our health, our rights, our privacy, and even our economy. I hope it will inform you and inspire you to take action for your own protection and health, as well as for the communities you live and work in. Our first panel focused on the implications of the decision on rights, not just reproductive rights, but those rights that impact on personal and individual liberties. Our guests on this panel were Kim Christensen-Clark, Legal Director for Legal Voice, a progressive feminist organization which uses the power of the law to make change in the Northwest, and Dr. Heather Carter, Executive Vice President of the Greater Phoenix Leadership and a former Arizona State Senator and State Representative. I started the conversation by asking Kim Christensen-Clark the basis on which the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade was made. The right that was recognized in Roe v. Wade was grounded in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which basically prohibits any state from uh, depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And of course, life and property are very clear, but legal scholars have debated for a long time what this concept of liberty means. Um, and of course, I could go on about the opinion, but in short, what the majority of the Supreme Court held was that this idea of liberty, whatever rights are conferred by this concept of liberty, are limited to those rights that existed when the 14th Amendment was drafted and passed. And of course, the problem with that, uh, you know, reading that that form of constitutional interpretation is that it's limited um, in time. To, you know, we're frozen in time to when the Fourteenth Amendment was passed. Um, and of course, um, you know, many of more than half the population didn't enjoy uh, equal rights at that time. Um, and of course, there are flaws, I think, with the uh, historical interpretation of the uh, court's opinion as well. But but that, in a, in a nutshell, is what the court held. 
I see. And so where does that leave the states and what is the status overall at this point in time? So unfortunately, there are 26 states that are poised to born uh, to to uh, ban abortion outright. 13 have trigger bans, which are laws that were drafted before this decision was issued that basically said that if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe versus Wade, um, these laws would go into effect. Um, there are um, a number, another set of states that are poised to pass similar laws. And then there are laws on the books from uh, before Roe versus Wade was decided that many states banned abortion that many states are now seeking to enforce. Um, there are also statutes like Texas SB8, which impose civil liability or create a private cause of action that, that um, individuals can bring against providers for offering abortion care after fetal embryonic activity can be detected. Um, and of course, you know, that's um, you know, problematic because it adds to the, the burden that these bans are imposing. Also, it, it really creates a culture of medical surveillance. It, it incentivizes individuals to spy on one another and literally creates a monetary reward for um, cybersecurity attacks um, and other intrusions on the, pers- the individual privacy of people who can become pregnant and their and, providers. And what does that mean in terms of medical complications of pregnancy? Um, well, there's a, there's a huge concern. It, this this has already been an ongoing concern, but um, where you know folks are experiencing miscarriages and they go to the hospital with complications. There are many hospitals who you know, particularly those who follow the Catholic hospitals ethical and religious di- uh, directives, that will refuse to provide care until such time as there even even where it is clear that the the pregnancy is not viable, even if it's a an ectopic pregnancy. Um, where uh, until there's no fetal heartbeat, which um, poses significant health risks for uh, pregnant people, it can lead to sepsis, and that that happens across the country, even in so so called safe haven states. Um, until now, folks have gone to you know would, would you know at least have the option of going from those types of hospitals to Planned Parenthood or other independent um, reproductive health clinics for care. But now in these states that are banning abortion, many of those clinics are closing. And so now it means potentially having to cross state lines to access that care as well at a a time when you are facing a medical emergency. Even medical centers are talking to their faculty and their residents and saying, we may not be able to provide um, this kind of care, which is very scary. That's Um, right, because the laws are very vague as to, you know, when, uh, you know, care can be can be provided? What does it mean, you know, for a pregnancy to to pose a threat to someone's life? Uh, That is, you know, obviously a huge problem with these statutes. And then what other reproductive rights might also be affected? Well, I mean, I think there are other rights in general that are that are at risk. The, there are, uh, you know, the right to contraception is grounded and that, that is also grounded in the liberty clause of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, as is gay marriage, the right to sexual privacy. Um, there's just a, there are a whole range of, of rights that could be could be implicated by this decision. And while the majority said, oh, we're confining this decision to abortion, those rights aren't at risk. There's absolutely no principled, um, you know, basis uh, for the protection of those rights after after this decision. So, um, you know, there are significant consequences. You and I have also talked about IVF. Um, a lot of these statutes 
you know, maybe written broadly, broadly enough to encompass something like IVF if they prohibit the destruction of a fertilized embryo, um, because IVF, as we know, um, often results in, in the destruction of fertilized embryos. Um, it really, in that case, comes down to the state statute, but um, certainly that's another unintended consequence of, of these laws. Explain that a little bit, because I think it can get kind of confusing with respect to why is IVF even a part of this conversation? So it involves IVF, of course, many of these statutes define life as beginning at conception, meaning at the point at which you have a fertilized embryo. And uh, if the destruction of a fertilized embryo constitutes murder, that would implicate IVF treatments uh, potentially, as well as, you know, abortion and miscarriage management. Right. And so then that means that those individuals may have to keep those embryos frozen or stored for a period of time, which incurs more cost. And also, I think there was also a question that they would have to use all of them all at once, thereby, you know, having a pregnancy that could have multiple births. Exactly. Uh, right. And I, I, I think the real question is whether or not, um, you know, providers will continue to offer, um, you know, that, that care in states that have these abortion bans uh, as well. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Beyond the Paper Gown. So, Heather... Um, as we heard, the states have a lot of um, say in this. And I just want to, you know, note you were in the state house and Senate, mm-hmm. and you chaired the health committee in the state house as a Republican. You ran as a right to life candidate, but I know you personally, and I know that you don't see things as black and white. You understand the nuances, um, especially when you consider all of your constituents. And we know that 82% of people in the United States want there to be access to legal and safe abortion. And again, there may be different thoughts about, you know, you know, at what time do you, you cut that off, perhaps. And we also know that there's data, and we're going to get to this again later on, about that the loss of access to abortion leads to worse health outcomes for mother and baby and results in keeping women, especially those that are already um, economically challenged and their children in poverty. So I have two questions for you if you would. How is that kind of data or even constituent desires factored in as a, you know, a House representative or or senator? And then what are the challenges now once the decision is made for people like yourself who are still left in elected office, who are open to a more nuanced approach? How can they approach this issue? Do they even have a path to help craft a a compromise, if you will? (laughs) Well, thank you, Mitzi, for inviting me. And I have always enjoyed being able to pick up the phone and and ask you questions from a a medical perspective. And I think that's what's really important to understand is that as an elected official, we are a citizen's representative body, meaning we are just as diverse in our opinions and views as the American population is. And yet we do not have all of the answers as the elected officials. And so as an elected official, I always valued being able to pick up the phone and call you and ask you questions. So I'm going to unpack your question first with sort of an overview of the way you can kind of look at the process. If you think about it, this is really about both politics and the policy. 
Obviously, today we're going to take a deep dive into the policy, but I want to spend just a minute discussing the politics of this issue. Because if you look at them as two separate sort of pieces of the same issue, you're never going to be successful. They are the same coin. And if you don't understand the politics, you'll never be effective in the policy world. And if you don't understand the policy, you're going to have some massive challenges around the political world as well. So it's really two sides of the same coin. So from the political standpoint, this issue of choice versus pro-life has been reduced to a dichotomous uh, answer on a survey. You are either pro-life or you are pro-choice. And there's very little room on any surveys, endorsement, uh, interviews that you do to have this nuanced conversation. So my challenge to the body politic is elevate this conversation. Let's have more authentic, fact-based, more robust conversations around these important issues. Because as this webinar today will show, is there are a lot of unintended consequences. So that takes me to the policy side of the coin. So, you know, I'm really excited to be on this panel today to hear what all the experts have to say. I wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't know how this is all going to work out, not only in the near future, but in the long term. So what can we do right now? First of all, it has to be all hands on deck. So you as an expert in the field, whatever your area of expertise is, or your own personal experience as an individual, I challenge you to get involved in the process. That means know who your elected officials are. That means making sure that you're showing up and voting when it matters. What happens is a lot of these decisions on who our elected officials are happens in the primary election. Typically, the lowest voter turnout of all of the different elections. Obviously, we just came out of a very robust presidential election. There will be one coming up in 2024. But there will be hundreds of little elections leading up to that that will make a fundamental difference on what happens next around these issues and all of the unintended consequences. So a big thing that we need to do is look at the policies and really take a deep dive and fix where we can make changes in statutory, in the regulatory environment, to make sure that we are addressing some of these unintended consequences. And it will take all of us working together. And then, Mitzi, if I may, my, my last point I want to make sure I get out to everybody listening today is whatever you do, please do not remain in the echo chamber. You have to talk to people that hold a different opinion than you hold. And you have to do it with respect, follow your heart, speak your truth. And that's the only way we're going to figure out the path forward for this great country. And I really encourage you to talk to somebody it holds a different opinion than you do. Thanks, Heather. And I want to ask one real quick question. When we were talking um, prior to this panel, you talked a lot about, you, you know, you said that a lot of this happens when people are not voting, such as in primaries, number one. <laughs> number two was that, you know, what can we do as citizens to change, you know, or to at least get our um, representatives to to listen to us? And one thing that was really interesting that you said is, don't sign those massive petitions, that it really needs to be something much more personal. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. And then Kim, if you wanted to add to that too, as well, um, with respect to, uh, to advocating. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define what you mean by petitions. So there's initiatives, there's referrals. By petitions, I'm meaning 
the mass emails to elected official. What happens when, as an elected official, you are receiving sort of um, the mass national email uh, sign up? So like, for example, change.org, and you feel like you want to take some agency, you're really passionate about it. So you go to a website that says, sign up here, sign the petition. As an elected official, when I received a change.org email action alert on the issue of abortion, my email would get shut down, which obviously sends a message, right? The volume sends a message. However, if I'm looking to communicate directly with my constituents so that I can understand what my constituents feel about this issue that live in my district, there I do not have a name on that email. I do not have a way for me to communicate back to that person. And so a much more personal approach is more impactful. And it doesn't have to be a long email. It can be quick in the title. I'd like to talk to you about this. I'd like to share my story about this. I'd like to share data about this. Couple quick sentences and then reach out. And what's really interesting is a lot of elected officials will hold a meeting for you. They, especially with availability of Zoom, picking up the phone, there's a, there's, these are people, these are not, you know, this is your neighbor who may run for office, right? And may end up in Congress. Pick up the phone, call them, email them, and don't give up. Keep reaching out. I think that's really important. And if, for example, your own elected official will not respond, find one that will. So I used to say, I'm the health chair. You can adopt me across the state of Arizona if you care about this issue. These are the committees I serve on. So look for an elected official that will, will listen. And I will tell you, a lot of this is about politics and it's grabbing the headlines, right? So, I mean, in terms of, of the conversation people are having, we want to look to solve problems and there, there is a path forward, I believe. I fundamentally have to believe there's a path forward here for us to address some of these absolutely real concerns we have with these decisions. And so that's, that's the space that I'd really like to lean into. Thank you. Kim, you want to um, follow up with that? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think we've spent too long relying on the courts, which are an inherently um, conservative institution. I think movement building is what we should be focused on right now, um, particularly movement building that centers reproductive justice and the work of reproductive justice organizations um, and really interrogates this claim that abortion is somehow in tension with religion. Because I think that's one thing that the um, anti-abortion movement has done very well over the, the course of the last five decades is to really rewrite history and change the narrative such that many people now believe that it's not historically accurate. And um, I think we need to be having those conversations so that people understand that. Great. Thank you. How can we codify Roe? Does the Women's Health Protection Act need to be modified before it sees success? Are we stuck here as long as the filibuster remains? I think we probably both have the same answer to that question. I think we're stuck here as long as the filibuster remains. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both. I know we could, again, spend so much more time on this. This was really helpful. Um, Kim Clark and uh, Heather Carter, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Mitzi. Thank you, Mitzi. Thank you for doing this webinar. So here are the key takeaways. The 14th Amendment prohibits any state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The majority of the Supreme Court decided that the rights that are provided by this concept of liberty are limited to those rights that existed when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. 
and in this interpretation, abortion is not an explicit right provided by the Constitution. They also left it to the states to decide their own policies. At this point, there are 26 states that are poised to ban abortion, and there are also statutes like the one in Texas in which individuals can bring lawsuits against providers for providing abortion care. The medical risk of these kinds of law impact on the health of pregnant women at large, even those that are not seeking abortion. In those states that ban abortion, healthcare providers may be hesitant to even provide care to women who have an ectopic pregnancy, for example, which is a pregnancy occurring outside the uterus and is non-viable, or those who are miscarrying. Such hesitation or lack of care can lead to medical complications and even death. There are other rights that may also be open to interpretation on the basis of this ruling, including contraception, gay marriage, and even sexual privacy. IVF may also be affected if the destruction of a fertilized embryo is prohibited. Currently in practice, embryos are destroyed because of genetic abnormalities or because there are too many embryos. The concern is that patients may be required to freeze the embryos in perpetuity, which is extremely costly, or providers may feel obligated to implant all fertilized embryos, compelling a woman to carry a multiple birth pregnancy, which increases the risk of complications. Because the decision now lies with the states, our panelists encourage you to take action to make your preferences known. That means know who your elected officials are and vote, including in a primary election, and up and down the ballot, even in those smaller races. They all matter. What doesn't work are those big petitions, according to our panelists. Rather, get on the phone or send a note and offer to meet with your elected official. And if your own elected official will not respond, find one that will, such as the chair of the health committee in the Senate or the House. You can also join a movement through one of the many reproductive justice organizations that are addressing this issue in order to get the right information and manage the conversation. Both panelists agree, however, that to truly protect women's reproductive rights, Congress needs to codify the right to abortion, which won't happen in this current climate unless the filibuster is put aside for this specific issue, or more sympathetic senators and representatives are voted into office. I hope this podcast helped put things in perspective and perhaps inspired you to take action. Let us know what you think on our forum under Aftershocks at beyondthepapergown.com and check out our resources. We'll be updating those frequently. We'll also have a challenge for you to take action by taking small steps each day. And the entire webinar is also available on our website. Thank you for listening. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shambayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.